0: game though right
1: yes yes sometimes did
0: you, did you do you have you ever played cuphead
1: for about two weeks
0: oh you gave up
1: uh absolutely yes oh, yeah. that is a rage game right there that is that weak is a rage
0: game. weak sauce my brother because today they finally released a new island of downloadable content and Whoa. I my whole morning was ruined because i was just like i just want to <laughs> stay here and play cuphead like because I, unlike some people who I won't name, uh, I actually uh, uh, finished the, la- the the game. So,
1: you know, nice. You need nice. to you need to
0: level up, son.
1: Well, uh, I that is, you know, I know my limits. I love the game. It's an amazing game. The artwork and music are just incredible, and it's just it's a lot of fun. It's very challenging, and it's just it's a rage it's... game for me. Dana and <laughs> Zoe have um, have gotten all the way to like i don't know there's like what 12 king die battles before you like oh, actually man, yeah. beat him That's, or something yeah. I don't and then know. You they're, actually they're up to, against him
0: and after you after you play king Di- you actually still have to beat the devil so you think king dice might be it and you're like no no my friend
1: yeah there's somewhere in the middle of that uh of that catholic purgatory like uh right there the- <laughs> Between
0: I, and by King, the,
1: I, and King Dice and, and Hell or whatever. You know. I
0: love the soundtrack so much. I bought it like it's amazing that he, it, that guy created all that original jazz 20s, 30s source music. I mean, it'll pop up on my when I hit shuffle every now and then I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. I do. I, I have this whole like album.
1: We often put that on here at the house just uh, just to have it as uh, background music or as work music. You know, we'll we'll work
0: to it. (laughs) We're lonely PhDs. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. Would you say that we either do we critique, review or analyze film? And I only ask this question because we actually challenge our students uh, uh, with this question at one point in the semester.
1: Uh, Well, I'd like to think that we do all three you know, just in our various nuanced ways, you know, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't always make it explicit, but I think that's kind of what we're doing is all three in some, in some instances, we're not doing classical formal reviews in the sense that we're going through the movie scene by scene by scene. And I mean, there mm-hmm. are people that do that, but so we don't do that. Yeah. Um, but we, but, you know, I like to think that we look at that context uh, for when a movie is released and and some of the sort of the commercial or economic history, little bit of pop culture stuff too. Um, But I think we're looking at technique, we're looking at story performances.
0: Today on the show uh, we are reviewing a couple movies. Uh, Dr. Watson is reviewing and talking, well I say reviewing, we're we're going to discuss uh, uh, Firestarter from 1984 directed by Mark L. Lester and. I believe he has a lot of things he wants to say about this film and some other supplemental things that we haven't gotten into in the past. Uh, I watched Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood directed by Richard Linklater, 2022 currently on Netflix.
1: So um, Firestarter, you know, I, I think that um, we, we have to open it by just saying that, I really don't want to have that book versus movie debate. You know, that's like Mm -hmm. a second, third grader kind of like (laughs) teaching tool. Right. Like point out the differences between the movie and the book, you know, and it's like, well, this is a movie. That's a book. Right. They're just two different media forms. Right. So, so um, when you're talking about somebody like Stephen King, uh, you 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 gotta get out of that debate really quickly with people or that mm-hmm. that part of the discussion because there's not really a whole lot of fruitfulness, I think, that can come from that. So Far is a Stephen King property. Um, and uh like the early 80s, where it was just like they, you know, they were churning Stephen King movies out left and right
0: by my count in the 80s, just to give people an idea who, who weren't even alive yet. Between 1980 and 1989, there were 16 adaptations of of Stephen King properties. 16.
1: It's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I <laughs> it was it was difficult to keep up in some yes. instances because there were just so many coming out. It it it's like Steve and Stephen King has his own sort of uh, MCU, right? Uh, Absolutely. Will, yeah, will, it's built kid. around the Dark Tower. Yes. <laughs> Um, But the early 80s, uh, there was this really interesting period of time, I would say, between 83 and 85, really, because I think I put Stand By Me as a Stephen mm-hmm. King film that really just like, OK, forever in the cultural zeitgeist right after Stand yes. By Me was so seminal, right, for so many of us. Um, but uh, like 83 to 85, right, you had some really interesting Stephen King adaptations going on and they weren't really going very well. And I think that's largely because, you know, Dino De Laurentiis had uh, the, the rights to these books and they just didn't always come together. I think the way that they were supposed to. And sometimes we just learn kids that, you know, it might be a great book, but it's not going to be very scary as a movie. And, 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 it, <laughs> and also I'll
0: point out, too, that like King's own admission, there's a lot of and I'm I mean, you know, I'm a huge Stephen King. I've been, I've read every book he's ever written have since I was a kid. Um, and you know, <laughs> Stephen King had substance abuse issues, uh, in the eighties, alcohol, cocaine, other, other such things, uh, <laughs> that I could not confirm, uh, exactly, yeah. but, uh, by his own admission, he was so coked up at one point, he tried to direct a movie maximum overdrive people
1: <laughs> which is brilliant cheese by the way if you've soundtrack
0: seen- yes. by AC ACDC DC, <laughs> who make a cameo at the beginning of the film or at least their van does i mean i mean he just and and famously he has always sold his properties for like 1 like he he doesn't make he makes his money on the books like he doesn't you know he 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 has no the weird part is, is that he has it seems like no attachment to it as moving to film adaptations, but yet he will criti- criticize them. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, well, when you give it up for a buck, you've got people like Delorentis coming in, or you know, it never reached canon film uh, 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 echelon, but I'm sure they were in the running at Ooh, some
1: point. It was close. It oh, was that close. That would have been Jeff.
0: something, huh? A canon it, film of, of Stephen King. What I mean. Man?
1: you know maximum overdrive is probably the bridge between those two uh kinds of of material and uh the the interesting lead-in to firestarter is that you know carpenter was coming off the thing and they Mm -hmm. offered him a couple of properties and he did a shot at firestarter Mm -hmm. uh bill lancaster who wrote the screenplay for the thing who is burt lancaster's son i i never knew that, that right uh, and um, so Bill wrote a script version of Firestarter that apparently Stephen King liked, but the thing did so poorly <laughs> at the box office that Carpenter had kind of become blacklisted. So they pulled him from the project and instead he ended up with Christine.
0: Now, Christine which... comes later after Christine Firestarter? comes.
1: Christine comes earlier. So, oh wow. Uh, I didn't know yeah, that. they pulled Firestarter because I think for some reason they thought Firestarter <laughs> might have more uh, legs. I, i'm I'm not really sure uh, this part of film history is is very well researched from a Stephen King perspective, but not mm-hmm. so much from an industry studio perspective. Um, and, and, and I'll
0: say for people if you haven't seen Christine, it is it's a good film. And, you know, he he makes a ghost story, which he was very familiar with, with the fog. Uh, I'm speaking of John Carpenter, mm-hmm. um, you know, and even all the even I know he he's recounted. I've heard his commentary on it. He's recounted the troubles of getting the car, you know, to to do the cool little bits that are just little bits in the movie. Honestly, I mean, it's a be- pretty effective ghost story. I I, I just
1: not as know. creepy as you can make that story. Yeah. Right. Well, the performances I mean,
0: of of uh, John Stockwell and um, Keith Gordon, especially Keith Gordon in that film. I mean, he really does the transformation and uh, really brings a game to it. And I know, yeah. I know Carpenter normally has said he's not really an actor's director, but that's some in instances where I disagree with him because I'm like, yeah. I know he got that performance out, of him. right? I
1: know it. You know there 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 was an interesting lead up, I guess, to Firestarter. Um, and, 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 but I think Firestarter faces the same struggle that say children of the corn or, or, um, or, or even Christine for, for that matter, the setup is very literary. And sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're translating that to, to visual storytelling, it just, it doesn't always, um, it doesn't always work. Right. But Christine Mm -hmm. had moments, right. I think Firestarter has moments um, uh, but overall is, uh, is really just a very slow burn, no pun intended. It's, it's not very scary, Jeff, and it doesn't hold any suspense for very long. And I actually, for our audience I went out and actually really dug in. I mean, I watched the reboot or the, I'm going to just call it a remake because that's what it was. Uh, yes. 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 2022, 2022, 2022, this year. Bloom House, which apparently controls, you know, like every horror property these days. Uh, I even went back and watched uh, Firestarter Rekindled from 2002, which was a two part miniseries. <laughs> what is this? This was an <laughs> attempt in 2002 to do a sequel. This was like, Charlie, the little the little girl as a teenager, right? Oh boy! Uh, And it's got like Dennis Hopper in it, and um, it's it's a very bizarre, bad. Was this
0: like a Sci Fi Channel thing? Maybe it It was. It was. It was a Sci Fi miniseries.
1: Yeah, sci-fi miniseries. Malcolm McDowell and Dennis Hopper are in that thing. So really, but I watched it for you all people. I did, and it's pretty oh, wow. awful. Um, oh wow! But really, my point is that, like the the remake, the original just has so many stretches where you're not really super invested in these characters, and uh, and there's no real suspense being sort of maintained or upheld, and so it just becomes dull and and yeah. both the remake as flashy as they tried to do it the remake and the original suffer from that you know it, they're just not very scary right so they're yeah. really more kind of sci-fi character stuff but we're not given enough character stuff either so um so yeah so you know firestarter for those of you who don't know is um uh in um the 1960s and 70s uh, the department of scientific intelligence
0: mm-hmm. was
1: involved in what they called lot six or the experiments um uh, the characters in the movie call it the shop right but they were experimenting with uh, hallucinogenics on um, individuals to see what kind of superpowers could be created from such experiments uh the mcgee family that we meet in the movie andy is the father charlie is the daughter uh played by drew barry moore uh, mm-hmm. fresh off et uh the they are um you know, former patients, uh, at this shop or lot six experimentation, Andy can do mind control and, uh, Charlie has uh, pyrokinesis, right. So she can set mm-hmm. things on fire when she gets angry. So, so obviously the government is interested. They're always on the run. The government wants them. They, you know, they want to contain them. They want to use, uh, abuse them, utilize them, you know, for, uh, military purposes, all that kind of stuff, you know, your standard kind of, um, Framework around that story. So it really just ends up being like kind of a lazy cat and mouse game of when is she going to blow? And what is she going to set on fire? Um, Right. You know, props to them for in 84. Those effects, Jeff, those visual effects Mm -hmm. were just really pretty groundbreaking for the day on that budget. I mean, uh, you know, I was reading about how Mark Lester said for the fireballs that she shoots Mm -hmm. against the golf cart and the and the barn and all that kind of stuff they were literally like pyrotechnics, but they were looped on wires, like all the way out to where they needed to go. And so they were like (laughs) manually pushing these things on fire, like (laughs) across this
0: dangerous. (laughs) I'm like, I
1: don't even know why I don't even want to know what their insurance policy was for working on that set because there was just fire, you know, stuff, uh, pyro going everywhere. But, um, but yeah, it's not a very good movie and it, and it has a huge cast.
0: George you know, C. Scott. I mean, George C. Scott
1: is in the film. George C. Scott. And we, we and, and I have to show you. Chewing talk about up scenery. Because it's the eye patch, right? And and he wears this eye patch in some scenes. In some yes. scenes, he doesn't have it. And I looked that up. <laughs> Apparently, they had his eyes, they had some sort of like contacts in his eyes to make his eyes look strange, right? Because he's playing John Rainbird, a former patient of lot six who is now sort of like the Boba Fett bounty hunter of, you know, I'm going to go get, you know, these, these patients that have escaped. Um, and he's a Vietnam vet, you know, so he's got like all this some trauma. Right. But he wears an eye patch in some of the scenes, but not others. So apparently George C. Scott had an allergic reaction Uh-oh. to the contacts. Right. And I mean, I'm sure they're already paying this guy like a million dollars right oh, yeah. for like two days worth of work. Right. And um, he, he, uh, he it got so bad that he couldn't wear those contacts, but his other eye was, was just in the one eye. And so he told the director, he was like, I'm going to wear this eye patch. <laughs> I'm going to wear this eye patch. Okay. <laughs> Can't you just see him coming in and like, just kind of riffing Patton for like five seconds. In the oh yeah, just
0: freaking just, you know,
1: America loves a winner. Yeah. It's just, um, just too good uh but it's just cheese so yeah but george c scott martin sheen art carney louise fletcher heather locklear made her film debut there he's the mom yeah uh and and the lovely david keith i don't know what happened to him but he's so good in officer and a gentleman and he plays charlie's dad in this movie and he has kind of a sweet face such such a good presence on screen but yeah, I just think that it suffers from, uh, you know, really, really just kind of the source material. It might read very well, um, but it, it it doesn't always work when you translate it. But I liked, uh, I, I have to say that I do like the music in this movie as well as the remake. Carpenter and his son did the music for the remake, and boy, they are it's it's their killer work, right? They yeah. they really do pride themselves on on what Carpenter says, laying carpet. In a scene right the scene is already built well, you're they, just that's there all making they do music they accent it, right they yeah. just want to accent it right and yeah. they're trying so hard to build some suspense mm. in in this remake it and it happen. just is and and tangerine dream did the did the music for the original in 84 right. mm-hmm. and they've done some great scores and you they did
0: tell, a they, they, they did, did a sorcerer
1: sorcerer legend yeah. as well um and so they uh, they're trying desperately to, you know, create any kind of tension that they can out of this, uh, out of this material. And it's just, it's just not really there, but I did enjoy the music and it should be, it should be mentioned that, uh, uh, that it's quality work there.
0: If I remember and, and for, for people, you know, this was, this was one of those eighties on cable movies that were on all the time. And so we, we all, it was, I, Honestly, most of these Stephen King adaptations were, um, and they, they filled up a lot of time on cable, uh, but I haven't seen it in a number of years, but I, I'm thinking back aesthetically. It's exactly it. as bad
1: as you remembered. It's exactly <laughs> as bad
0: as you remembered, I assure you. Is it is it a bit of a Carpenter clone as far as cinematography and even graphics go if i'm if i'm remembering all that correctly like
1: yeah i think there was i I think that uh that from a production design standpoint from a cinematography standpoint there are some similar i think carpenter would have shot it much that way um Mm -hmm. I, i i think that's very fair to say um but i i I don't know, Jeff, it so just, bad. it just, it just doesn't <laughs> really hold. And, and some, you know, and one of the things that really, and here, here's something different, right. That we do mm-hmm. with our reviews and our critiques and our, whatever it was that you called it in the list and the earlier I children in peril is a plot device yes. that just yes. grinds away at me. Right. I mean, I just, it's something that is hard for me to watch. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously it's, maybe because I have heightened sensitivity because I have my own kids or I, whatever it is, sure. I don't like those kinds of narrative devices. They make me very anxious. And so
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm surprised that I can sit through, that should tell you something. I can sit through fire starting, about yeah, she's fine. She'll just set them on fire. You know, I mean, it's, it's, this is nothing going to happen to her, you know? Um, so uh, it it's, it's, it's a device that's used um, it, that makes me anxious, but it's, it it is not maintained maintained here as well and i guess do you think that the children in peril thing comes from being an 80s kid and having the you know satanic panic and all this you know all the stuff that stranger things is distilling like in their in their stuff Mm -hmm. i think it kind of comes from those roots and i think that's why the duffer brothers have done it so well Mm -hmm. with stranger things because obviously characters like charlie mcgee are a uh you know a springboard for characters like 11 the you know the Hawkins lab is very similar to lot 6 and right duffers. well i
0: mean the, the yeah. you know the duffers the duffers have been not shy about taking all everything they can from the from the king canon uh mostly from the filmic side of it uh rarely from the litera- like rarely from the literary side so i mean it 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 makes sense uh as to the question I think that that's a, and we, you and I have had some discussions, I've had some discussions with some other folks about this. It's just that, um, you know, children's films, in quotes, in the 80s that would, like the Goonies is children in peril, uh, Witcher in the Woods is children in peril, Something Wicked This Way Comes, children in peril. Um, this was just norm for the course.
1: Grimm's Fairy Tales. So, Grimm's Fairy Tales. <laughs> children in peril. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's ancient, right? There's a history behind that kind of device, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's normally, uh, it would normally be for morality reasons. Right. But the, the, the eighties did not seem to have any interest in that whatsoever. Like they they were, they were, they were just trying to scare kids. I I mean, and and make it, uh, I guess, exciting for the adults because animation had really declined. You know, cinematic animation had really declined by the 80s. You know, the Disney house had pretty much got down to maybe one movie every now and then. Right. Uh, Hand-drawn animation was on the wane. Uh, Computer animation, what kids... It was on the rise. It It was on the rise, but we won't see that until the mid-90s with Toy Story, the first Toy Story film. So, I mean, yeah, it's a hard time to describe. So, you know, quote-unquote children's entertainment or, or, or movies made for adolescents uh it, it's quite a boon and i i would suggest to people to do a little research on it and and look it up and actually think because it's there are some fascinating films uh uh from all over the world uh that you can that you can experience so yeah yeah i mean i i yeah
1: well did I, I answer think the
0: it's... question your honor you did, did I yeah the i'm
1: you did i think it's just it's been uh it's been with us, and we just have experienced. It's been with us for forever, but we've experienced these waves of uh, of interpretations, and and they're they're usually generational, right? Um, you know, I don't, I can't speak to whether a kid watching Firestarter in twenty twenty two is going to think this is a great movie, you know, or or this really scared me, you know. Maybe it does. I, you know, I I don't know, um, but um, but yeah, that that device is just something we can trace because if you think about it, stranger things is really playing into that every season, you know, it's children in peril Um, and they've stayed away for the most part from the sort of sexual morality that would have existed in say teen slasher films, right? They've kind of, Oh yeah. For the most part avoided that. Um, I know there was some in the first season, right? There was a little bit of that not to go into stranger things, but there was some of that in season one and, you know, maybe a little bit in season two, but they've mostly shied, from that and i
0: think it's interesting that you bring up teen slasher films what i always found fascinating or what i still find fascinating about that particular label is that you know to get into a rated r movie you had to be 17 or accompanied by an adult yet they call them teen slasher films and i'm like (laughs) it's the antithesis of that right like i mean and and you know just watch you know one friday the 13th or one nightmare uh you know on elm street or one any any of those any of the multiples or it's just like there's there's you know uh uh, gratuitous sex nudity uh, catastrophic violence and it's just like you know horror for teens it's just like well what's horror for adults then and of course my answer to that question is david cronenberg but you know that's (laughs) Uh, we're two lonely PhDs. We, we uh, sit around and chew the fat uh, over films. Uh, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. I watched something interesting this week, and I was so glad uh, I had completely forgotten about it. And this is what I like to call, I, I can't be the only one that suffers from Netflix Q amnesia. It's bad. You know, I'll put it in there. And then months later, I'll go, oh, you know, I'll just be scrolling and I'll just go, I mean, it's just like I still haven't seen uh, um, um, the folks who made a, 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 a city of lost children. yeah, he put out it's in it's I saw it today when I was sitting in my kids. was like Jesus this came out like four months I, and I'm just like, what is wrong with me? like where have I got is this a condition we need to start, you know, Thinking about oh, well, it's
1: bad, especially if you have multiple streaming services. You know, mm-hmm. you go through and you're just looking at all the cues and you get overwhelmed and you end up watching nothing because you're so overwhelmed at what you haven't yet seen. You know, so yeah, I mm-hmm. do you think it's a condition for some of us. Yes, for it's some of it. us
0: <laughs> of a certain demographic and or age. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, so anyway, uh, I popped up on my list and I was so glad uh, uh, Richard Linklater put out a film this year. Uh, Apollo 10 and a half, a space age childhood. Uh, and he is going back to rotoscoping uh, with this film. Actually, a bit different than uh, Waking Life's rotoscoping or Scanner Darkly's rotoscoping. Uh, in this, he really had learned from those two processes. And, you know, he shot this film in like a month on green screen and then everything else was filled in animation wise you know so so he really has learned his lessons because one thing about waking life that i think made it in the time the technology where it came out was made it difficult was you know they shot everything physically and then had to go in and you know paint over it uh, oh sorry for those of you who don't know what rotoscoping is uh rotoscoping is his oldest film uh it goes back to um uh I always say his name wrong Moy Bridge Moybridge
1: Moybridge yeah Moybridge yeah.
0: you know the the famous photos of the horse and mm-hmm. all that that's rotoscoping Disney in, in animation studios infamously used rotoscoping uh, it was not traditional hand cell animation like much of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs rotoscoping like it's it's and and there are prints of it that exist they've tried to to get rid of them but there are prints that exist that I have seen where it flashes just like in Bakshi's stuff in the seventies, you know, where it's just like it flashes, and you can see that crappy set, like, like you can when you watch uh, Wizards or uh, uh, some of the Lord of the Lord of the Rings adaptation that that yeah. uh, that he did. Although I do like Wizards, I think Wizards holds up um, of his cycle of film. So that's what rotoscoping is basically. It's just you know taking film and painting over it, drawing over it, creating. There can be arguments about surrealism. Uh, I think that there can be arguments about, uh, uh you know, fantasism, uh, with it, uh, Linklater is this, is his third film using this particular technique. I think it functions as, as dream logic or, or sort of a dream state. Um, obviously he slams it over your head in waking life because that's nothing but philosophical vignettes about existence um scanner darkly that's a film amazing k.
1: film by the way oh, it's, so
0: it's it's someone who understands philip k dick and tries not to filter it you know what i mean it's just like and that's crawling inside the head of a schizophrenic so i mean it's it's just i, I though, man I, I love those performances in it hooey that's some good stuff um so we get to apollo 10 and a half and he's he this is basically his childhood in in growing up in houston this is kind of material he's never approached before uh he's going to talk about himself uh in in a lot of ways and i think the use of rotoscoping here is used to create that the past is like a dream now right uh nostalgia is like a dream uh it brings up you know we can't quite see it but we can uh in our mind's eye um and he so lovingly tackles this, this time period for him growing up. He's like the youngest of six children growing up in Houston and NASA's exploding. The Astrodome gets built. The first heart transplant happens. Uh, the suburbs crop up. Um, you know, he, he spends not a lot of time, but it, the right amount of expositional time sort of giving you an idea of place mm. um, and, and trying to situate you in what is essentially like a different world because 1967 68 69 and in Texas, I mean, that's, that even predates me. I mean, I'm born in 77. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it could be fantasy. You know what I mean? Like, it just like, it sounds so fantastical. Like really life was like this, and I mean, talk about children in peril. He he, he shows these great scenes of like, you know, uh, 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 Roman candle fights on the 4th of July. And, you know, uh, uh, kids like playing Red Rover and one of them going through the Red Rover line so hard it like cracks the kid's arm and the bone comes out. You know, and it's just like, and that's when we stop playing that game. That's what I really liked about this film too, is, is it's not, I wouldn't say it's nostalgic. You know, I, I don't think it's, it's longing for anything. He's just saying this was a time that existed and it no longer exists. And here's what I remember about it. And these are some stuff, this is some stuff that happened. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I was worried about his approach because initially the, the device of the, of the film is that this uh, kitty. of course, he doesn't call it, you know, he gave him another name. Uh, you know, says that, uh, you know, NASA comes and finds him in the schoolyard uh, and when he's 10 and it's just like, hey, uh, we picked you out of the crowd and, you know, you have like good kickball scores uh, or something like that. And it's just like, uh, you, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're, you know, we're racing to the moon and unfortunately we've built the, the capsule too small, you know, so we need a kid right? And we're going to put you into training. And, uh, you know, and we've already gave you a cover story of sending you to summer camp and here are pictures, you know, and, you know, makes you think about the Kennedy assassination and like all those, you know, faked photos and everything like that. And then the talk of fake moon landings that still persist to this day for some odd, odd reason. (laughs) Um, But uh, so he he sets it up like that. And and I was a little worried because it's the, it's the front matter of like the first 10 minutes. And I was like, is he really going to go all the way? And then he stops it and he goes, "Hang on, let me let me tell you a little bit about Houston, right?" And then, large chunk of the film. And so I'm like, I'm like, "Oh, this is the film. Like, this is you know what I mean." Like he's just right. doing the wraparound uh-huh. uh, to 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 get to the actual meat of the film, which is just he wants to talk about culture, society, politics, and being alive in like 1967 through 1969. Uh, in 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 texas and in america and also a feeling of what i got when i was viewing it was that this this feeling of anything was possible and then the possibilities became a reality but what he doesn't say which as a as a you know as i was thinking about it some more is it's like and then the hangover that's coming you know that that we all all of us of a certain age know but you know at least that existed right right (laughs) this this, this place this space this it seems just so fantastical these days
1: Well, well sounds like uh uh i wasn't sure what to think of the movie i didn't see it um uh not yet um i watched the trailer and my first instinct was is this a kind of F is for family only flipped and done a little bit more artistically or maybe and,
0: even spy kids,
1: right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. Cause he, uh, he shot it at troublemaker That's studios. Fun. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. So do we see the meat of the film is him just sort of living out different existence or different events or things that happened during that
0: time. He's period? just, yeah. He's just or walking us through amazing? it like a flashback. Like he's just walking us through, you know, uh, uh everything <laughs> almost everything in his life that's going to be I mean, he describes like what it's like to like live in the suburbs you know what it's like to to hang out uh how yeah. you know uh how tight money was for the family like it it goes and again this film is only i think it's only an hour and 40 uh minutes long he uses every bit of his exposition like he he does not waste anything um and that's really amazing because i could see that this film probably at one point was longer at least in the script stage but he got it down to to the to the weight that it was uh in the flow that it was uh in in this in this end cut i mean i, I might be wrong he might have just you know had it cut and ready to go but uh i know they only filmed for a month and it was all on green screen at at troublemaker studios uh no physical sets uh, and if some, if you see something physical, that the actor uh, that's all hand drawn in, uh, but using the same palette of the rotoscope.
1: So obviously, you know what I know about Linklater is that he is a re- really good filmmaker. I wouldn't hmm. I wouldn't say that he's of a, a specific genre per se at all. Um, I'm not sure where I would classify him, but it sounds like he accomplishes a lot of stuff with this that he did with Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. Only in the sense that capturing a, a moment in time uh, in a truthful way, and real way, uh, you know, in Days of Confused, it's funny, but that's, that's what life was like, right? Mm-hmm. To be a teenager in that time period in the 70s. So it seems like he's kind of hacking away at the same thing with this, only just a different age, obviously, mm-hmm. um, where imagination and possibility are still very much alive, right? Yes.
0: Yes, I would say that's before fair. it
1: dies out in Days and Confused.
0: <laughs> What's interesting about Days and Confused, I saw that when it first came out uh, in the mid-90s. And I come from a very small town in Alabama, Northport, Alabama. And it's right next to uh, Tuscaloosa, which is the home of the University of Alabama. And, you know, it's pretty much a flagship university uh, in our state. But no one, you know, every time anyone they go to Tuscaloosa, no one ever says Northport. You know, Northport is across the river, across the bridge. And it's, it's literally like a, another place, like another, <laughs> you know, I went to Tuscaloosa <laughs> County high school, um, dazed and confused. I completely got like right off the bat. Cause I was like, oh yeah, you go cruising with your friends in the car, go to Sonic circle around, wait for somebody to like throw a party in a field, you know, wrangle up some booze or beer, or you know, weed or whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just like, oh, no, I, I completely. Universal
1: truth. There's some universal truth. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, it's in the 70s, but I was living it in the 90s, you know, and I'm sure it's still I'm sure it still goes on today to some degree, uh, you know, somewhere. Uh, so then let's see. He covers the 80s and everybody wants some, doesn't he? Or is that 1980? Like, I, did he put it right? I can't remember if he put it right on the something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, because we've got, you know, uh, uh, the introduction of uh, a whole new set of music, new wave, Uh, you know, now he's in college, right? If it's, it's, I don't know, would we call it his everyman character then? Like that that sort of stands in. Now we've got the kid version, we've got the teenage version, and then we've got the college version, um, and everybody wants some. Um, Who just, man, we just won't play baseball, you know? I mean, it's just like, it's just, it's so... (laughs) (laughs) it's good play base it's underrated i'll put it that way like it's just baseball and hang out man like we just
1: but he's just he's good at capturing he's so good at capturing those um moments that you know are are seemingly trivial to anyone else but when you put them in a context of uh of a story or a film they become like these poignant like you know captured moments of time time Mm. um thinking about the before trilogy you know i mean it's it's so good you know in terms of the way that it refrains itself and reprises things and moments and and it's beautiful uh he's just really damn good at doing that so um Mm. i'm happy to hear that this one is another great entry into that uh into that canon when directors have personal connection to material i think it's going to be a better overall experience, period. Um, Mm. That's not to say that, you know, directors who take big paychecks don't put, you know, their creative spirit into those projects. Mm. I'm sure they do to a certain extent. Um, But I think if there's a personal connection and you feel deep, you're just going to feel deeply about it Mm. and it's going to end up with a different product. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I do a lot of linking. I think this is fair, uh, you tell me, but sometimes I do a lot of connection with students where I'll say, well, Richard Linklater is a lot like our John Sales in a way. Like yes. he's got that same yes. kind of intelligence and passion for certain topics and material. A lot of them dealing with the past or how we represent the past and, mm-hmm. um, and people and places um, and seem to have a heightened conscience about it. You know, like how are we how are we doing it? Are we being authentic? Are we being truthful? Um, I I connect these, those two directors. um, And then I go back even further and I say, well, Cassavetes is, is, you know, an influencer on John sales and, Mm -hmm. you know, and Soderbergh fits in there too, at some point in the chain, but um, of those independent sort of directors who work outside the studio, but they make really, really interesting films. um, But they're not necessarily going to be, running next to jurassic park or top gun you know they're just not commercial films they're mm-hmm. we, we, we would call them independent films right because they're
0: and and, um, and this goes back to our we were talking on past episodes you know about the need for you know not not necessarily indie movie houses but just cinemas in general yes um, so that that you know you can have that option because again i lived in a small southern town and we had you know the the fox 12 you know was the big theater at least in one of those theaters you'd have like blue velvet or you know what i mean like it was like even though it would only show like twice a day you know like once at two and then one at seven basically making it impossible to ever you know get to it um you know that's that's where we saw things like fargo and uh 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 Barton Fink and you know things like that you know and yeah it's just you in the theater but that's that's cool too because it's just like what a I think of nothing better than when I go to the to the movies and it's just me or just me and my wife and we're just at, at the whole theater to ourselves I'm like isn't that a awesome wonderful experience This is. it's
1: like we're at home but not yeah, but yeah. Not. look uh, how big our
0: okay. TV is there, <laughs>
1: there are there are some movies though that i think like i was excited to see the thing with an audience yes. right i mean there's some top gun i wanted to see with an audience right mm-hmm. because um uh because you want that sort of community response and feeling of spontaneity to it it's you know there's nothing else like it but yeah there's man especially if it's a niche movie you know like cronenberg oh, yeah. or or david lynch or something like that and you're the only two people in there who private screening what? private
0: screening absolutely hey that 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 uh that awful uh tv adaptation you were talking about earlier do you have a link to it
1: i can i can put it in it's currently streaming on uh, peacock Oh, okay. and i can put you know a link to it uh in in the discord yeah it's pretty awful
0: no well, no it's it's pretty in awful a, as far as like cinematic pain goes, I always like to go, you know, Mikasa Sukasa people. Uh, you know, just come on in to the show that never ends. Uh, it's just like this is we for for those two, I love dispelling a myth too. I hope this week proved it. It's just like we do watch ones that we just go, oh. <laughs> what
1: in the hell? I mean, it's... the special effects in the in this rekindled movie, Jeff, mm-hmm. they're terrible. They're just ah. it's obviously they just had no budget and um cgi was still on its way uh to to being uh of quality and um yeah man malcolm mcdowell playing a burned victim one of her Mm. former victims who's now chasing her down (laughs) malcolm mcdowell with a burned face where is the girl i mean you know it's, (laughs) it's, it's it's where is Charlie McGee? I mean, it's, it's it's bad, Jeff. It's bad. It's really bad. Is it but like, I invested because I love our audience and I invested in it because I wanted to make sure that there wasn't anything that I meant like, well, maybe in rekindled they had some growth or some light and there was like, well, there was a story there they could really explore. Nope.
0: Is, is it like the level of PC game video cut bad?
1: It's pretty close yeah the effects. wow are you talking about yeah, that's
0: what i'm talking about the acting too that was, that was well, always so great yeah now the acting games. is
1: you know i mean actors can only say the words on the page right and so i you know i do have empathy for actors sometimes and they're doing their best yes. you know and and that's not to say that in the original 84 version jeff you know drew barrymore obviously had a, a lot of talent right i mean she was very she still is very funny at, at certain material but Um, But as a kid, she did, you know, have a couple of moments in the movie, you know, where it's like, okay, I can tell she's really upset. You know, she's Mm -hmm. really upset. I I read in some commentary that you might find this interesting, that right before uh, the climactic scene at the end, where she's uh, with her dad. Mm-hmm. And her dad is near death. Right. And she needed to like, you know, cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read this um, and I can post the link in the discord if people. Yes, please, please, please. People don't believe me or if they just want to read it. But uh, that during filming of that scene, Drew Barrymore could not cry the way that she needed to. And so she she asked David Keith, the actor playing her dad, if he would spank her off camera. Mm-hmm before shooting that scene and according to that interview that is exactly what happened he did that she was able to use that in the scene and the take and cry in in the moment so it's you never know what's going on behind the scenes jeff because you know you no one sets out to make a bad movie everybody is positive and wants to do their best right but Man, you don't know what you have until you're looking at it in the editing room. But but yeah, um,
0: that's. I mean, they had glycerin drops. That's you, you didn't
1: interesting backstory. You know, I don't know, um, okay. but it, apparently it was consensual. You know, there were there were other people on set who saw it. It wasn't you know, it wasn't like a malicious thing, but it was an odd thing. Like when that popped up in the interview, I went, what she acted. She asked
0: him to do that
1: as motivation for, you know, because that's, that's interesting.
0: (laughs) Anyway, that's enough of our shenanigans. Uh, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes.
1: I'm Dr. Joseph Watson.
0: And we are Lonely PhDs. We'll see you next time.